Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. It's Thanksgiving weekend here in the United States, a time that marks the start of the holiday season. Instead of an interview, I thought it would be appropriate to share with you a collection of some forward-thinking ideas and good news stories that have emerged from recent discussions here at the Brookings Institution. Brookings hosts hundreds of public policy events every year, featuring policymakers, academics, journalists, and other experts talking about the most significant policy challenges of our times and solutions to those challenges. Along the way, we hear many stories that express the potential for good public policy programs to bring progress and hope to our world. I hope you enjoy these excerpts. Along the way, I'll let you know where to find out more about the event each clip comes from, and links to all of them can be found on this episode's page on our website. Happy Thanksgiving. When we started working on girls' education in the initial years, the barriers were similar to barriers in many, many areas, particularly rural areas in the developing world, which were child marriage and distant schools that kept adolescent girls from accessing their right to an education. A recent UN study has indicated that 47% of girls in India marry before the age of 18. I hope you're shocked. In Maharashtra state, the statistics are close to around 35% for child brides. This is Armin Modi, the founder of Ashta no Kai, a nonprofit that aims to empower and educate rural women and girls in India. Ms. Modi is a 2017 Echidna Global Scholar here at Brookings part of a group of visiting fellows hosted by the Center for Universal Education. At an event on girls' education, research, and policy held in early November, Ms. Modi shared a story of her nonprofit's success. In the early years, we noticed that many of our girls as young as 12 and 13 were married. And one of the reasons was that schools were distant. But that did not prevent parents from buying bicycles, for their sons because they considered their sons, as you all well know, assets. Unfortunately for girls, they felt buying a bicycle was an unnecessary expense because the girl would eventually get married and they also would have to pay a dowry. This led us to launch a bicycle bank which has enabled a thousand girls in our areas to access school. And when we discontinued the intervention, Parents, realizing the value of educating their daughters, began to buy bicycles to send their daughters to school. Merely enabling a girl to access school, we felt, was not enough. As Christina has just mentioned, life skills education are such a critical core component to promote girls' voice and girls' agency. So we added a life skills education program that would promote girls' future well-being in tandem with the Bicycle Bank. After three years of cycling to school and completing high school, some of our girls came to us and said, can we keep the bicycles? We would like to go on to junior college. We were delighted and launched a scholarship program. And I'm very proud to tell you that more than 1,100 girls have received scholarships and our village girls have become dentists, engineers, pharmacists, agricultural researchers. They have blown us away. 
In June, President Trump announced his decision to withdraw the United States from the Paris Climate Agreement and begin negotiations to re-enter the accord, or what he called a new transaction on new terms. That same month, the Cross Brookings Initiative on Energy and Climate hosted a conversation about the president's action. Experts gave their views on impacts ranging from clean power to U.S. foreign policy. Here's David Hart, non-resident senior fellow and a professor of public policy at George Mason University, talking about how individual U.S. states can still advance climate goals. There's no reason that we can't have something like a Paris Agreement amongst the United States. Without, I don't think we can do without the federal government, but we can get by without them for a while, and I think that's the way to think about it. So, for instance, as you mentioned, there was a hashtag, really not much more than that, called We Are Still In, that was sort of fully announced yesterday with nine states, and this grew out of an effort spearheaded by Mayor Bloomberg, former Mayor Bloomberg of New York, who was a special envoy of the UN in this area, and he mobilized what he called, at that time, America's Pledge, which is now We Are Still In, in which nine states, over 200 cities, over 900 businesses, and over 180 universities have said, we still support Paris. Now, exactly what that means remains to be determined, but nonetheless, it's a statement of commitment. There was also something called the U.S. Climate Alliance, which was announced by Governor Brown, Governor Cuomo, and Governor Inslee of Washington. That includes 12 states and Puerto Rico now. They were just expanded yesterday. So I think we'll see more states coming into this as we move forward. What it exactly means for emissions, I think that remains to be seen. A lot of it is happening because it makes sense economically. A lot of it is happening because the markets are being designed in such a way that it does make sense. So our energy markets are not free markets the way you might imagine many other markets, but they're structured by government. It's almost inevitable, and we see this all over the world. But across the states, there are different models. So I think it's an exciting development. There's a lot of hard work to be done to measure commitments, to monitor them. And there are some mechanisms in the Paris Agreement, which we can talk about, that facilitate that on an international basis. But it might be possible for the U.S. states, cities, and private companies to say to the world in a united way, hey, we are still in Paris, even without the United States government playing the role that it used to play. I did a very crude calculation just of states that have made commitments for 2050, that is emissions reductions commitments, and then extrapolating patterns from other states, and I came up with 43% by 2050. So it's not 80%. I think if we added cities that have made commitments, we might get over 50%. So uh, even without the... 43% of... 43% emissions reductions from 2005 in 2050. So if, if we assume that all the states that have made 2050 commitments achieve them, and we extrapolate emissions patterns from the last few years out to 2050, and obviously, I wouldn't want to put this through peer review, so this is for the think tank consumption. Uh, but I, you know, I, I would invite I would invite my colleagues to improve these calculations. There's you know there's a lot of a lot of work to be done on them. But just just you know back of the envelope stuff, we can say to the world, hey, we're halfway to our commitment without even trying. And now maybe this saints will get together and try harder. New York City has experienced a dramatic reversal for the better in its economy and quality of life, following a rough period in the 70s and 80s, followed by the economic shocks of 9-11 and the Great Recession. In an event held on Halloween, Centennial scholar Bruce Katz sat down with New York Deputy Mayor Daniel Doktoroff to talk about Doktoroff's new book, Greater Than Ever, New York's Big Comeback. Here's Brookings trustee Antoine Van Actmael introducing the program 
and offering his personal take on how far New York City has come. It's easy to forget that New York in the early 70s was a really very different place from today. Now, I know because I lived, worked, and got married there at that time. Many areas of New York did not feel safe. The once thriving waterfront where millions of immigrants were brought on passenger ships was a shambles. It had become an ugly wasteland. You wouldn't get caught dead in Brooklyn. <laughs> Tenement houses on the Lower East Side were outdated in disrepair, no longer needed after the garment manufacturing industry basically left. New York then was a city on the way down. There was little construction. It was somewhat disheveled, bleak, losing population, and without a compelling vision of its future. Pessimism, particularly after 9-11, was widespread. Then, although a number of steps, certainly in the area of safety, were taken by earlier administration, that changed dramatically under Mayor Mike Bloomberg. And the man he appointed in charge of this reshaping, reimagining, and rebuilding was Deputy Mayor, then Doktorov. Harvard grad, trained as a lawyer, investment banker, and private equity manager. Him and a team of savvy politicos and young whiskits. The rest is history. And it's told brilliantly in Doktorov's new book with the telling title, Greater than ever, New York's big comeback. So last week, I was in New York, and on the train back, I read his book. No one is going to deny that New York is a totally different city today. And what's most amazing is that what seemed to be the nadir, September 11, really turned out to be not a dead end, but actually the beginning of something really big. It's actually hard to fathom what the Bloomberg Doctor of Team did. The scope and the scale of it are just simply mind-boggling. Not just the celebrated Highline, the new bicycle routes, the parks, the cultural institutions, but the total renaissance of Brooklyn. I was there recently, and my son lives in Brooklyn, and my wife and I came on Saturday night and Brooklyn, where I would never go. We left Brooklyn on a Saturday night, and we saw the train, the subway train, in the other direction was packed with people. That's the change. The first smoke-free bars and restaurants, the first new subway line, and low-income housing development. New York is now growing, and growth is important, vibrant, safe, and exciting again. In the research for my own book, The Smartest Places on Earth, I already knew that the key to making cities grow again is to focus on collaboration, a systemic approach, strengthening the economic and diversifying the economic base, and last but not least, vibrancy. It sounds like a simple recipe, but to implement and execute it is not easy and makes all the difference. New York has become a great example of how to transform a city. Madeleine Albright was U.S. Secretary of State from 1997 to 2001 and U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations prior to that. 
She spoke at a Brookings event in September on the theme of liberal democracy as the path to greater security. Along with Mehdi Jama, the former prime minister of Tunisia, Albright co-chaired the Democracy and Security Dialogue, an initiative of the Community of Democracies, launched to foster greater collaboration among democracies to improve security outcomes and to create a better environment for strengthening democracy around the world. Here's Secretary Albright explaining the important connection between fostering democratic practices and foreign policy. History's direction does not seem as obvious as it did a quarter of a century ago when many felt that the expansion of democracy was inevitable. Yet we know that international stability is still influenced greatly by whether freedom finds a foothold in nations where democratic forces are being repressed. The research conducted through this dialogue provides ample proof, backed by data, that democracy is more than just another form of government. It is also a powerful generator of international security and peace. What we found makes clear that while democracy may not provide a guarantee against aggression, it is the best political insurance available. Governments that are publicly accountable rarely start wars, while regimes that run roughshod over their own citizens are often indifferent to the rights of their neighbors. Moreover, in today's world, destabilizing conflicts erupt more frequently within societies than between them. And here again, democracies have a clear advantage because they embrace pluralism, encourage tolerance, and enable citizens to pursue change in a lawful and peaceful way. It's no coincidence that the hotspots most likely to harbor terrorists and generate waves of refugees are in areas of the world that are non-democratic. Meanwhile, democratic nations are more likely to support timely international action to fight violent crime, trafficking, and disease. So over the long term, democracy does provide stability, but the research offers a warning. Democratic transitions in the short term often lead to increased disorder and instability. Political liberalization may open new avenues for grievances to be heard, but those still trying to control the levers of power are all too often unwilling or incapable of implementing meaningful change. Corruption, which is the cancer of any democracy, can exacerbate the situation, locking in economic, political, and social advantages for a few at the expense of a broad social contract that benefits all. All this means that countries stuck in the messy middle of incomplete transition or illiberal democracy are especially vulnerable to conflict and violence. Advocates for democracy should not be deterred by these findings, but they can't be ignored either. What the findings make clear is that small-D Democrats need to understand and respond to the legitimate desire of people everywhere for social order and economic growth. Now, I've been in many arguments about which comes first, economic or political development. The truth is they go together because people want to vote and eat. We in the international community need to invest in making democracy deliver in transitioning countries, not only because it's consistent with our ideals, but because it is in our interest for democratic transitions everywhere to succeed. And this is where the community of democracies has a truly essential role to play, for it brings together democracies new and old 
to share best practices and help each other meet common challenges. The principle of democratic solidarity is powerful, and we are reminded of this fact every time the community gets together, as it will later this week at the State Department. Around the world, governments band together for reasons of geography, economy, history, and religious faith, but there can be no better grounds for supporting one another than the shared commitment to freedom. And it's for that reason that the community of democracies deserves the enduring and high-level commitment of our leaders, not just at periodic meetings, but in our everyday policies and actions. We need to remember that building democracy is never easy and it is never fully accomplished. And even in the world's oldest democracy, which would be us, we continue to evolve. It is something to be worked towards, step by step, country by country, day by day. It can be noisy, inefficient, and at times exasperating, but it has also been tested over and over again. Nevertheless, its resilience should never be taken for granted. At the first gathering of the Community of Democracies in Warsaw, Polish Foreign Minister Bronisław Geremek emphasized both the value of freedom and its fragility. And I quote, the emergence of democracy was the most important development of our century. But he also reminded us of another 20th century lesson, which is that the tides of freedom will always be opposed. Today, it is this warning that is in our mind. And going forward, it must be on the minds of not only democracy and human rights activists, but the broader national security community here in the United States. Because it's no coincidence that the principal threats to the safety and security of American citizens emanate from authoritarian regimes, such as Russia, North Korea, and Syria, where the brutality of Bashar al-Assad enabled ISIS to take root. The United States must consider this reality when we make our foreign policy decisions. It's sometimes necessary to make alliances of convenience with countries that don't share our values, but even when we make such arrangements, we should never forget our long-term interests and our obligation to stand behind the homegrown champions for democracy and human rights. What our dialogue makes clear is that democracy and human rights must always be a pillar of our national security strategy and a part of our agenda, bilateral and multilateral. The word democracy cannot be left out of our foreign policy. Shedding our support for it would put in jeopardy our long-term economic, political, and security issues. Without this commitment, U.S. foreign policy would lose its moral compass, its most compelling claim for global respect, and ultimately the support and understanding of the American people. We must never forget that freedom is perhaps the clearest expression of purpose ever adopted, and it is the community of democracy's purpose. Like other profound aspirations, it can never be fully achieved. It's not a possession, it's a pursuit. And as today's event makes clear, it is the star by which the United States and our democratic allies must continue to navigate in the years to come. In August, Brookings convened a forum focused on the need for criminal justice reform and possible alternatives to the existing system. 
Panelists included political activist DeRay McKesson, Georgetown law professor Sean Hopwood, Brittany Packnett, a vice president at Teach for America, and Clint Smith, a doctoral candidate at Harvard. Dara West, vice president and director of governance studies at Brookings, introduced the forum's keynote speaker, Governor Terry McAuliffe of Virginia. Here's the governor with a good news story about young people turning their lives around. Just yesterday, as Daryl mentioned, I visited the Bonaire Juvenile Correction Center, one that I'm closing, just outside of Richmond for a family day festival. It was a day for them to celebrate with their families the progress and success that they have had and to just give them just a couple hours to feel like a regular kid. I was amazed by their incredible talent. One group even performed a spot-on rendition of songs from Hamilton. And we heard moving stories from former incarcerated youth who are now finding tremendous success in their new lives because of the new tools that we've been able to provide them. I met a young man named Jalen who had recently been released from the facility where he had spent the last five years of his life. But while some people might see a troubled youth, I saw someone who has the respect and admiration of his peers and his mentors. Jalen is an avid reader and a poet. While incarcerated, he was a mentor at the University of Virginia-led Russia Literature Program and served as the president of the Bon Air Student Association. And now, with 24 college credits already under his belt, he walked out of Bon Air last month with a college acceptance letter in his hand. That's exceptional. <clears throat> because when I became governor, there were no college courses available to them. Today, these youths are taking up to seven college courses, including earning their high school diplomas or GEDs and getting now workforce credentials. This marks the first time in Virginia history that such robust educational offerings have been made. That speaks to our dedicated team at the Department of Juvenile Justice and the great educators who work with these youths. While Jalen's story is inspiring, he isn't alone. I believe that each of these young men and women deserve a chance to succeed when they leave the confines of juvenile detention. For our juvenile justice agency, that work starts the moment that they enter our care. But for our education department, for example, that work starts much earlier. Like many states, far too many of our Virginia students spend time outside the classroom as a result of disciplinary action. We've heard of stories of students being handcuffed and arrested, and the data clearly shows that African-American children and students with disabilities are disciplined at a much higher rate. And according to the Virginia Department of Education, African-American students make up 24% of the student population, and yet they account for 53% of the school discipline. And while recent data show a decline in the overall number of suspensions and expulsions, these numbers, folks, are still far too high and continue to disproportionately impact certain students. Totally unacceptable. There is no room in the Commonwealth of Virginia for excessive discriminatory treatment of our students. That is why I announced in October of 2015 a major new statewide initiative, Classrooms, Not Courtrooms. It is why I directed my children's cabinet to reduce the number of students who are referred to law enforcement 
experiencing unnecessary school suspensions and expulsions and suffering under disproportionate disciplinary practices. As a result, our agencies have been hard at work to support the local efforts to stop this practice. In June, we unveiled a new model memorandum of understanding for all of our local partners that all had to sign. And we now have a new rewritten Virginia School Law Enforcement Partnership Guide. There are very strict guidelines now when, when someone can be disciplined. And I recently signed legislation directing the Virginia Board of Education to establish new alternatives to short-term and long-term suspensions. Together, these steps will contribute to a healthier and more productive learning environment for all of our children, and I hope it will help prevent our young people from entering the juvenile justice system in the first place. America has been at war for the last 16 years, yet less than half a percent of the American public comprise the active duty force today. The small group of Americans and their families at the front line of our defense face unusual challenges. In an event held at Brookings on November 16th, the Center on 21st Century Security and Intelligence convened a panel of experts to discuss military families and civilian military engagement. During the event, Kathy Roth Duquette, Chief Executive Officer of Blue Star Families, presented the findings of the 2017 Military Family Lifestyle Survey results. Here she is introducing the survey and reflecting on the service role of military families. I love our survey. It was the very first thing Blue Star Families did when we decided to become an organization. A group of military family members, myself and others, wanted to keep doing the job of defending and supporting our country through being part of a military family as a service member or as a spouse, as a family, but it was hard. And we have the responsibility not only to the job of our country, but to the job of taking care of our family. And we felt that that job could be easier. But it wasn't something any one of us as an individual person could make easier by ourselves. It was something we needed to work together as a community so that we could articulate to the larger society what the challenges are and what we thought perhaps the solutions might be and work together with the different sectors, the government, nonprofits, communities, others, to get to a better place so we could keep doing this mission that we did love, but we couldn't do at the expense of our families, just like any other American can't do something that hurts their families. And so that's the premise of Blue Star Families, is for us to provide a platform for military families to articulate their solutions, to help solve them, to provide a fellowship that makes the job possible. We knew we needed data. Everyone has an anecdote, but we wanted to know that we're on the right track. And so we fielded a survey, and that not only helped us tell the story, but helped us understand where we wanted to focus our efforts. And it gives us surprising outcomes every year. This is the eighth time we've told the story. This is the eighth time we've distributed the survey. And we get to ask different things each year because we allow people to give open-ended responses. And by giving open-ended responses, we're not only forcing people to give the answers they want, which is something that had often frustrated me in surveys I'd taken in the past. Do you feel that deployment has helped your children or hurt your children? Well, both. The answer is both, but both wasn't a choice. So we let people tell us things that maybe we don't know to ask. And based on that, we ask new questions in subsequent years. And I think a great example of that is our experience with our families and our experience with communities. 
I'm also very proud this year that we got a lot more data on the experience of women serving in uniform, because I think that can be very helpful for us to creating the kind of force we want to have in the future. For me, the survey is full of good news, because it's full of pathways forward. It's full of ways that we can really create a 21st century military force for a 21st century family unit that lives in a 21st century society. The community issues are key. We do not live on bases anymore. We live in communities, but we're such a small number and our lifestyle is so different from others and we are moving so frequently, often we don't know our neighbors. When we asked the question, how many conversations did you have with people outside of the military in your community in the past month, 30% of service members said zero. So that gives us an opportunity. That's something we know we want to change because we also saw that when people were engaged in their communities, when they did feel they belonged, when they did have conversations, they actually felt better about their military service and they felt more likely to recommend it to others. So there you go, it's a path forward. You can download the survey at bluestarfam.org survey. Finally today, a discussion of freedom of religion and conscience, bedrock principles of the United States, in a time of bitter partisan polarization in our politics. In September, Brookings hosted a discussion with the American Charter Project on the vital role that religious pluralism and freedom of religion and conscience play in fostering civility and unity in our democratic republic. The event featured leading thinkers of diverse viewpoints in a dialogue on present-day threats to our nation's critical freedoms and to civil public discourse. The keynote address was delivered by John J. DiUlio, Jr., a professor at the University of Pennsylvania and, as it happens, my very first boss at Brookings. Here is the last portion of Professor DiUlio's address, in which he offers what he calls a prayer, part of his response to the polarization challenge. Let me conclude then, in preface to my concluding prayer, let me conclude with three terribly, terribly homely suggestions. First, recognize that many 20th and early 21st century political leaders in each party have been mostly, if not always, or entirely reasonable, well-informed, and well-balanced in their views on religion in the public square. We don't have to romanticize this recent history to believe this, but I think it's very important at this time to just recall it. For instance, harken back to the 2000 presidential contest. In May 1999, Vice President Al Gore spoke about how America's, quote, severest problems and challenges are not just material, but spiritual. I believe strongly, he said, in the separation of church and state, but freedom of religion need not mean freedom from religion. Two months later, July 1999, then Governor George W. Bush spoke about America's armies of compassion. We will, he said, keep a commitment to pluralism, not discriminating for or against Methodists or Mormons or Muslims or good people of no faith at all. Government cannot be replaced by charities, but it must welcome them as partners, not resent them as rivals. Pretty good stuff. Seems like a long time ago. Second, let's try to be as fact-based about faith-based matters as we reasonably and feasibly can be, and let's also try to be open, open ourselves to hearing each other and hearing each other out on each or all sides of given religious freedom and church-state issues. For instance, two colleagues of mine, Professor Marcy Hamilton and Dr. Stanley Carlson Tees, together head a project called Common Ground for Common Good, 
under the auspices of the aforementioned uh, Penn Religion Research Program. Read Marcy Hamilton's 2014 book in its second edition, God Versus the Gavel. Read Stan's book, co-authored with the late, great Dr. Stephen Monsma, Free to Serve. If you read God Versus the Gavel with an open mind, back-to-back, with Free to Serve, you will get intellectual whiplash. And if you read them back-to-back with an open mind, you might or might not change how you think or feel about the issues and values at stake. But I think you'll surely understand your own empirical and ethical historical premises a lot better, and you will quite possibly see the other side or sides of given religious freedom and church-state issues a tad more empathetically than you did before. We don't know how to produce empathy. (laughs) We know how to change behavior at the margins in some conditions, but we don't know how to produce empathy. Empathy is a precious thing. Once lost, it could be gone from a society forever. We need more of that, and this may be just one, again, very homely way forward. Third, I would say let's celebrate a little. Let's celebrate how in a demographically dynamic and diverse representative democracy like ours, the civic intersections of religion and politics, the civic lanes that merge into church-state debates, are bound to be and ought to be busy and boisterous, not calm and quiet. Honking horns, traffic jams, indelicate disputes about who has the right of way, occasional confusion about the rules of the road, and accidental fender benders. But let's also at the same time insist emphatically, unambiguously, non-negotiable that one and all always stop far short of the civic equivalent of road rage. There are lines that cannot be crossed and should not be crossed. In his book, The Audacity of Hope, published in 2006, then-Senator Barack Obama described religion in the Senate as follows, quote, Discussions of faith are rarely heavy-handed within the confines of the Senate. No one is quizzed on his or her religious affiliation. The Wednesday morning prayer breakfast is entirely optional, bipartisan, and ecumenical. And the sincerity, openness, humility, and good humor with which even the most overtly religious senators share their personal faith stories can sometimes be a ballast against the buffeting words of today's headlines and political expediency. Close quote. So my prayer is that sincerity, openness, humility, and good humor return not only to the U.S. Senate, but to the wider society. That we find ways to cauterize, if not contain, to rein in, if not to reverse, the polarization. And that the American Charter Project and kindred efforts are blessed to make a positive and lasting difference. I encourage you to listen to the entire talk, in which Professor Diolio looks at the puzzle of why, in the 21st century, we have a politics that turns religious and cultural differences into political division. And then he explores a prescription based on lessons about religion in the public square bequeathed to us, as Diolio says, by James Madison.
That's all that I have for you in this special Thanksgiving episode of the Brookings Cafeteria. Thanks for listening. My thanks also to audio producer Gaston Reveredo and producers Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna. Our interns are Pamela Berman and Julian Chong. And a special thanks to Pamela, who created the sound design for this episode. Design and web support come from Jessica Bavone, Eric Abalahan, and Rebecca Weiser. And finally, thanks to David Nassar for his support. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.